Cool cats and fly honeys, welcome to the night's entertainment pleasure. For all looking for love and adventure from our brothers and sisters of Japan, this is the anime experience for you. Yes, this ain't your grandpappy singing and dancing cartoons. No, this is sophisticated, mature media for the modern viewer. How mature? Well, let me tell you. The following film may contain language and graphic imagery that isn't appropriate for the younger ones out there. If you're not hip enough for adult topics, you've been warned. Also, we're going to spoil the entire story from A Thousand and One Nights plus some other anime tonight. So make sure you're cool with that before going any further. And lastly, the folks in tonight's podcast are their own free spirit, unshackled by the man. So, know that all opinions are their own and not reflective of our corporate masters at all. Fight the power. All right, I think you've all been waiting long enough. Let's get this show underway. Peace and love, all. Good evening, one and all, and welcome to my Dub Talk Harem. Yes, come lie down next to me here and enjoy this sensual piece of entertainment that I have for you, because we are not dealing with the normal fare here today. Oh, no, no, we're not doing the isekai journeyed into another world, uh, into a fantasy setting matter, and we are not doing the giant robots thing or all those other things that you peg anime for. No, no, no. This is Dub Talk Retro Night. Yes. We are going back in time. We are going to the time period before any of that existed, before DigiPaint existed, before standardized recording techniques existed, before even the modern anime fandom as we know it existed, and going all the way back to the distant year of 1969. Nice. Summer of. It is so (laughs) nice. We could not resist making that reference because not only was it the summer of love, it was the summer that gave us the. Uh, greatest accomplishment by one legend of anime production, Osama Tezuka. Yes, you've guessed it right. We are going to talk about the mythical creation that is A Thousand and One Nights, or also known as Senya Ichea Monogatari, the film uh, not directed by Osama Tezuka. It was actually directed by uh, one nice man named Ichia Yamamoto and supervised uh, slash inspired by a story by slash he was kind of there and kind of had influence, but not really primary influence, but we're going to put his name on top of the marquee, Osama Tezuka. As you do. It's the name that sells the tickets. It, it, um, it's it's the Stephen King's Lawnmower Man of anime. <laughs> Also, it's a credit that keeps him happy. Yeah, that too. <laughs> Unlike Stephen King's Lawnmower Man. <laughs> uh, you keep telling me that exists, and I still don't believe you entirely. <laughs> I, I'm sure it does, but I, I'm, I'm sorry. I treat it like face-off, where it's like, man, that, that's a great fanfic you wrote, but it's too bad it's not a real thing. You were de- that you would deny yourself the combination of John Woo and Nicolas Cage, two men who have never said no in their lives. Is you're, you're stop denying yourself, Noah. Osama Tezuka is also someone who's probably never said no to anything. Nope. Nope. So, but anyways, I'd like to introduce the fine folks who, um, uh, I mean, again, this is a retro night, so uh, I needed to pull in some really uh, seasoned veterans of not only dub work, but also 
these people just actually really like older stuff. Like, these are the historians who I like to sit down, have a nice cup of tea with, pull out our big quills, and just talk about the good old days. Uh, first up, we have Amandul. Guys, you gotta help me. I took some of the brown acid. I'm having a bad time. I keep thinking <laughs> I'm in sort of ancient Middle Eastern fantasy land. Oh, wait, I'm watching a movie, aren't I? I still shouldn't have taken the brown acid. <laughs> I mean, is there a good colored acid? Uh, according to the according to the guy doing announcements at Woodstock, there at least is one that will not give you a bad trip. So, <laughs> must find that man. <laughs> and also, uh, we have a special guest with us tonight. Uh, we have reached out across the interwebs, and we have found a fine person who. Well, I, I will let her introduce you. But, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one and only. Megan? Is that you? Yeah, it's me, Megan. Hi. Uh, I like sword boys and bungo stray dogs and my kitty named Shinya and my boyfriend, Roots of Justice, and I'm a total gremlin. Yeah, that sounds like Megan. <laughs> it does. No, in fact, I have secretly replaced your Megan Z with me, Megan D. Gasp! Yay! Yes, you may know Megan as Brainchild on Twitter. And um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it is that you do around the World Wide Webs? Uh, well, most of the time I'm writing manga reviews at my blog, The Manga Test Drive. I've been doing that for over nine years now. Uh, occasionally I do panels at various conventions in the Midwest and East Coast. And I also do some longer uh, essays and uh, historical pieces, including The Reason I'm Here, a series literally called The Story of Anime-Rama, which talks about the entire history of the Anime-Rama trilogy. And that uh, series is um, interesting for uh, our discussions here tonight because it was a attempt to make adult-centric anime in Japan uh, for an adult audience in a time period where anime was not really well known to the Western world yet. So you wouldn't think that something that was made for an adult audience in a time period like that would get an English dub at all. But surprise, surprise, it did. We can actually talk about it for the Dub Talk podcast because thanks to the fine folks at Discotech, they managed to uncover the ancient English dub of this movie that was done by Italian actors back in the we don't actually know when. And it is such an obscure, under-documented article that, well, you'll see when we talk about it, but our discussion for this tonight is going to be a lot of guesswork and a lot of speculation. Yeah, literally until last year when Discotech put out their Blu-ray, this dub was literally lost media. The only mm -hmm. proof of its existence was a dubbed trailer. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, uh, yes, thank you to the fine folks who did that because um, we legitimately didn't think we'd get a chance to talk about this. So I believe that they were able to find it because they rediscovered a 16-millimeter print that had the dub on it. So they're able to rip the audio from that and line it up with the highest quality footage, uh, visual footage that they could for the release that you can now buy on Blu-ray. Correct. It was just yes. sitting around in the Tezuka Pro archives. Yeah, it was. It, that sounds about right. I mean, it is basically the, the white whale of anime releases that we never thought we'd get until just this week when G-Kids announced that they had licensed uh, Future Boy Conan. <laughs> <laughs> speaking, speaking of white whales, I didn't think, like, there, there's probably won't happen. There's like, nah, nah, stop kidding yourself, man. And somehow. These and days, somehow nothing is impossible in anime. <sighs> nothing. Waiting on bated breath for all of World Mastery Theater to get licensed now. 
and I mean every series from like the 60s to the present. It's probably not going to happen. <laughs> so l let's talk about this film a little bit here. So you've seen the title, Thousand and One Nights, so you're probably thinking, oh, is this like one of those uh, quirky Aladdin Arabian Night stories? It is. But it's a little, uh, little, little uh, less kid friendly than that. You, you should not. You will be seeing a whole new world, but you should definitely not take your kids on this magic carpet ride. Uh -uh. Here's why. So this is the story of Aldin, a young water vendor who uh, finds himself in the city of Baghdad, just you know, trying to make his wares. And runs across a young slave girl named Miliam, who he has the hots for. The two of them get involved in a misadventure involving greedy rich people, alchemists. And eventually, it leads to Alden getting involved in a lot of different mythological encounters that recount some of the better-known Arabian Nights stories. Uh, but it also has a bit of a twist of the Count of Monte Cristo, actually, where he disappears for a long time and then comes back as a very rich man to try to regain what he lost, essentially. And all the mythological events that happen in it are... Uh, basically a playground for uh, the entire production crew to play around with animation because, uh, as Megan could probably attest to, this entire franchise of the... How do you pronounce it again? Anima, anima, Anime-rama. Anime-rama, thank you. The Anime-rama series was an attempt to give animators uh, more tools and a playground in order to you know play around with the media of animation. It's kind of like what Gynax did with Fooly Cooly, only done... 50 years before that. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, that was the whole reason that Mushi Productions, the studio that made this, was founded in the first place. Tessica wanted to experiment with animation with the you know, best animators he could get. But uh, A Thousand and One Nights had a very inter uh, interesting production method. For this film, and this film only, they completely switched up their production model. They set aside an entire wing of the studio to work basically Disney-style where instead of uh, your key animators just being farmed out to whatever scene they can, they had teams mm -hmm. of them working under a key animator, all working on a single character. And so when characters interacted, they'd all work together. So it created this, this very uh, creative, collaborative sort of spirit. And, and that it, uh, is... I was going to say, yeah, you really a... see that in the film, just with all the different animation styles and... You really get a sense this is a team that hasn't just not been worked to death and got really sick of dealing with Tezuka yet. <laughs> and it, <laughs> thank God for that. There, there's a lot of, uh, it's not only really like fluid animation, but it's also uh, playing with colors a whole lot. Mm -hmm. uh, the frames are like stacked like manga panels sometimes. It flips between animation cells, live action bits, and model animation to create the different backgrounds. It's kind of like a, a Ralph Bakshi film for that same time period where they changed up the animation style to kind of fit the mood that was needed and in a sense gave us something that we haven't really seen in modern anime. This is very much an auteur-ish kind of product of its time. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And and um, and Aman, do, do you have any like uh, connections to the movie itself, like uh, as far as like when you first saw it or anything like that? Uh, I first saw it a couple weeks ago in preparations for this episode. Excellent. Awesome. Like, I was. I was. It was. It was one of those movies like I was always aware of. Um, but uh, well, case in point, actually, because I assumed, oh, this will never get any kind of uh, U.S. release. Actually, because I, I, mm. I found uh, a company called I think Third Window. Um, put out like a two disc set of this in Cleopatra in the UK, and I think the like Arrow store had a copy of it. And I was like importing a bunch of Region B Blu-rays that like this is never coming to America. I'm just gonna get a copy that I can watch on my region free player. And it's like 
Oh, it's just 30 bucks, so these are never going to come out in America. May as well just get this. And the monkey's paw curled. <laughs> well, look, well, look, this is not... The... Did I ever tell you how I bought the uh, first season on Big O for, like, too much money on eBay, and literally the next weekend Sentai rescued it? Oh, it's... no. I have a, I have a, I have, like, sometimes it's like, you know what, worst comes to worst, I'll take that bullet. Oh, uh, the I'm greater... so sorry. That's, I'm okay, that's, the, the overall good on that, that purchase was fine, I'm okay. I, I mean, I'm glad you're okay with it, I, I would have tried to have gotten my money back. <laughs> it is Without letting it... the person know. It Without letting the person know. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, the, I, I guess uh, it is. The box got kind of crunched in the mail. Can you give me a refund? <clears throat> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Does this have anything to do with that announcement last weekend? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Definitely not. No. Um, yeah, I wasn't aware that there was an English dub for this either. Um, I had actually seen this uh, years ago because um, I just hear a lot of different animation titles uh, in my line of work. Um, I had heard about this because it was touted as the first X-rated animated film that had ever been screened in America. Uh, kind of because it, it took that reputation away from uh, what people think was the first one, that being Ralph Bakshi's Fits the Cat, uh, well, which made a lot more money. That one has a lot more a lot more notoriety in American animation circles because people know about that film. But this one technically was released first. It was dubbed and released. Didn't make a big splash in America, but it does have the distinction of being the first X animated animated. Back when we had the X rating, you know, back when that was actually a thing that you could be. I do have to correct something. It was never officially rated. So it was, oh. they sold it as the first X-rated animated film. They did the same for Cleopatra, but neither of them were officially rated. Whereas Fritz the Cat absolutely was and wore gotcha. that with pride. I mean, oh, they were so happy about that. What was that? Let's put a picture of the poster up right here. Uh, we're X-rated for a reason, baby. Picture of Fritz with his hand down a girl's shirt right on I'm the just, front cover. I'm just imagining these MPAA stooges being like, oh, we gave you an X-rating. What do you think of that? And like the unwashed hippies who made that movie are like, guys, can you believe it? It's like Christmas came early. <laughs> <laughs> Literally no better way to advertise this to the weird head, head shop uh, proprietors we want to sell this movie to. And uh, an entire cottage industry was born. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, there, all right, so, there's not a lot of information about its English language release. Uh, as far as anyone can tell, it definitely got released in New York and L.A., which is like the bare minimum of a theatrical release in the States. Uh, yep. it, it was definitely, the stub definitely screened in Australia. Beyond that, it's kind of a big old shrug. It was, I mean, it's not like the kind of thing where your average otaku person is going to uh, pass tapes around of it, like uh, some actual animation from that time period. Like, this wasn't going to get a television broadcast, of course. So, yeah, the fact that we have a du we have the dub now and that there's any information available is really a modern miracle. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about that dub a little bit. Um, the one thing that we do know specifically about this is that it was dubbed not in America, but it was dubbed in Italy, and there is an entire... Um, career of actors in Italy who dub over English, uh, they give an English track to foreign films that's distributed to the international market, not just America, but also all English speaking countries like your European countries, Australia, even like South Africa, if you want to go that far. So it's not surprising the kind of people that we got to work on this. The director being one Fred Newman. Now, you may not know that name, um, and there is a different Fred Newman who is, like, a, a well-known radio actor. He's been on, like, the uh, Prey Home Companion series. This is a different Fred Newman. I had to double-check this to be absolutely sure. 
Um, he was actually a really interesting kind of a background. The thing that he's most well known for is not as a, a voiceover artist or a film actor. He's actually most known for being a, a, like an off-Broadway theater performer. He was a member of a uh, experimental theater group in the 70s called the Mabao Minds. And their biggest claim to fame was actually being the person who staged a lot of Samuel Beckett pieces. Not like the huh. really, not like the famous ones, like not uh, uh, waiting for Godot, but like the some of the earlier Samuel Beckett stuff that nobody remembers anymore. So Fred had uh, he had experience in uh, acting before, and he seemed like the kind of guy who was uh, just kind of like following wherever the acting bug would take him, which kind of led him to being involved in directing the dub for this movie. Now, uh, what other people are in this? <laughs> What other people? Hmm. Okay. That's that's the question, isn't it? There are a bunch of que- there are visible question marks over my head right now. It's like, hmm. <laughs> okay. So let's go to a full disclaimer here, uh, because so we're going to talk about the characters who are in this movie here, and I'm just going to rattle off who they are and who their actors are that we think are the actors, uh, because there are literally no credits on the movie release on any versions available all of this was uncredited work the only way that we have guesses for who was who in this dub that we're going to listen to is people who are much more familiar with italian dub or i'm sorry english dubs by italian actors listened to the movie and took their best guess about who they think was the persons that we're going to talk about and we got to give a big credit to one uh person in particular a forumite from the behind the voice actors forums called millicent sowerbury who we actually got in contact with and who was nice enough to share both his um uh, credits that he was able to put together he had clips available for us to kind of highlight their performances this is as good as we're going to get. Like None of you out there, not a single one of you listening out there are going to be able to say that we're wrong on this, but this is the best that we can do. Yeah, it's really impressive what they were able to put together because this only came out last year, but to be able to make so many educated guesses within such a relatively short span of time, just through mm-hmm. sheer research, nothing but applause for them. Oh yeah, absolutely. We we would if we were to do this episode without like knowing the names, we would just say like, so we're gonna just skip this whole section and just talk about the movie itself. But we, <laughs> we are going to give some actual credit here because this gives us a chance to talk about. I, I'm pretty sure, safe in saying, a subsection of actors who we will never talk about on this podcast ever again. Uh, only, we will only talk about these kind of people again if we start branching into. I will talk about this later, but basically, like other things dubbed in Italy in the seventies. Like that's probably about it. Do, do you want to cover the um, the Titanic animated movie from Italy? <laughs> we could do that. That would we start be, talking that... about Hercules movies, or, or maybe some Giallo. Oh, no, we should we should talk about the Hercules movie, which has Christopher Lee playing the villain, but he does not dub himself. Oh, what? I, me, 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 and my friend John. We were. It was some Saturday evening in college. We had an Amazon Prime account. We were looking for free movies, and we found some. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if it was a Steve Reeves movie, but it was that kind of like you know '60s Hercules movie. And Christopher Lee is in it as the villain, but it's dubbed over by different actors, so it's not Christopher Lee's voice, uh-huh. and it's really weird. How I can imagine. That... I. know I. No, I... I'm sorry, just starting the phrase like, it was a late night, we had an Amazon Prime account. Nothing good can come from that. <laughs> no, we watched a low-grade Hercules movie starring Christopher Lee. <laughs> except not Christopher Lee. <laughs> yeah, except not Christopher Lee. Okay, 
So, uh, yeah, so to full credit to these actors who we're going to mention, though. Let, let's go ahead and jump into it. So our main character, this is a 1001 Arabian Night story, is uh, Aladdin, or he's called Aldin. That's just a different way to pronounce it there. I mean, the opening song uh, actually calls him out by name, which is Aldin, Aldin. Here comes Aldin. That song rocks. And I love the parts where Aldine sings it to himself because it's that much of an earworm. (laughs) He's got his own theme song and he's not afraid to hum it. I gotta be honest, the first time I heard this, I saw this movie, because I think I saw it on, uh, someone had just uploaded the Japanese version on YouTube somewhere, that rock and beat, I kept thinking to myself, is that Gotta Get You Back in My Life by Earth, Wind, and Fire? Because it's kind of got that same beat to it. Uh, no, it was actually like a college band called The Helpful Soul, who yep. uh, uh, came together as like a college band in the mid-60s. They put out one album in 1969, which included some songs included in this movie, and then they broke up. The end. Uh, all the best bands. <laughs> as the classic rock band. Per- perfect garage rock band story. Bravo. Do, do they have garages in... I, I feel like what, what's like the more Italian version of like a garage? Oh, no, no. This like, is a uh, Japanese garage yeah. band. I, uh, what's the Japanese version of a garage then? Uh, uh... A, a dojo rock band. <laughs> I don't know. That's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyways, um, so uh, we talked. Uh, so we talked about Fred Noman, the director. Uh, we are suspecting that he was actually the voice of Altin. And again, I have not seen any of the other things he's been in before. Uh, like he's uh, Fred was in. Uh, he was like a lawyer in the movie Comfortably Numb. Or he was the principal in a movie called I Love You, I Love You Not. I, I hadn't seen those. But again, based on our sources, we're suspecting that Fred was the voice of Aldine in this movie. Uh, we're going to have to skip a couple of uh, actors in the next couple of sections. Because uh, Aldine has a wife slash girlfriend slash slave girl. It's questionable. <laughs> uh, n- named Milliam or Miriam, depending on how you read it. it- it's one of those uh, transliteration things from English to Japanese. Uh, we don't have an actress for her, actually, so we're not entirely sure who voices her. But we'll we'll still give a mention to her performance of name not included here, actress. We will also not be able to give a credit to the main bad guy, Badly. Now, Badly is the subtly named Badly. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was such a shock when he turned out to be the bad guy. I, I was like, how I, I, this guy? You're kidding. It's uh, but he's uh, he's a blue-skinned bad guy, and you know if you've seen uh any other, I'm okay. I don't want to make too many comparisons to um uh Richard Williams uh um uh the, the Thief and the Cobbler, but that was also a movie that had a blue-skinned bad guy in it. So it was, it's just a tradition now. All the bad guys gotta have blue skin, apparently. Uh, but he's got something better than blue skin. He's got a redheaded, badass, uh, not a girlfriend exactly. She's kind of a um, a cohort of her of his. Uh, unfortunately, they start off on a really bad note, and we're not going to get into it. Mm. But Madia is uh, the best character in the best female character in the movie. She is uh, part ninja, part uh, really good swimmer. And she's also uh, kind of nice to our main character, so she also gets a pass for that. And she does it all with at least one boob hanging out for like ninety percent of her screen time. Pretty much, it, it, it's full Amazonian. She, you know, she's gotta <laughs> show off that badassness. Oh, you also listened to the commentary, didn't you? <laughs> of course, I did. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Helen McCarthy, for doing an entire commentary on this movie. 
it, it, was, it, fun to listen. it was very sincerely enlightening it's very good it, it was it absolutely was I, I more movies need commentaries especially older ones like this i highly recommend anyone out there who's in the old licensing game get commentaries uh, by credited people like don't don't get the schmuck down the office who likes this movie like get someone who knows what they're talking about i'm, I'm not saying you should steal the criterion collection's entire model but it is nice having smart people <laughs> talk about the movie while you're watching the movie it's a fun time yeah it, it is it is uh all right so moving on to um uh, one more actress who we're not going to actually know who they are is um aldine and milliam have a daughter named jalis who is not credited um, in the Japanese, both Jalis and Miliam had the same actress, so it's fair to assume that they did the same thing in the English dub here, but again, we have no way of confirming it. They do sound suspiciously similar, so it's not beyond the scope of possibility. But someone who we do have credit for, we can finally talk about an actor here, is Jalis falls in love with the best-looking guy. It is confirmed by the genies later on that he is just the best-looking guy in the world, Oslin. And he is supposedly voiced by Mike Billingsley. Now, what has Mike done before? Um, well, he's mostly known as a sound designer and editor in 90s films. Or, I'm sorry, in Italian 70s films, sorry. Uh, and he doesn't have a whole lot of like other credits aside from, what's listed here? According to IMDb, he was T.I. Alias in Three Come Back. And he was Russian soldier in War and Peace, made in 1956. So he's more of a behind-the-scenes kind of person in the audio department. Let's see, who else have we got here? Um, now, this movie is weird in that it's uh, it cuts in the very middle of the movie and decides to introduce a couple of Martian-looking kind of characters. They're, they're, like, uh, they're identified as like genie-type characters or djinn characters. you got a green male one and a pink female one who are just shape-shifting sex havers. Just, you know... <laughs> They, they look like the Great Gazoo. They really That's do. What, yeah. That might be it. Might have been an inspiration. Except, wait, no, hold on. No, no, Flintstones came out. Did it come out before this? It would have come, it would out, have come before out before this. this. Yes, it would have. And it Tezco would have was already. an animation nerd. So it is. It's not entirely beyond him. There was plenty of Disney influence. There could have been some Hanna Barbera influence as well. So both these characters, they show up in the middle of the movie. One of them has an actual credited actor. Uh, one of them is uh, the guy is uh supposedly voiced by gene luoto now again i don't know him personally and his credits composed entirely of italian films that were dubbed into english so here's what i'm going to do for the next couple of characters i'm just going to list off italian titles for movies that sound interesting gene <laughs> has been an actor in films like strip nude for your killer i own that one. <laughs> oh, we're deep in giallo territory now i own that one that's supposed to be good Really? I mean, it's a Giallo movie, so, you know, good good Giallo movie for... for... I, I don't do you, know Giallo. Uh, do, you, do you like attractive women being murdered? No. Well, you're probably not going to like Giallo then. <laughs> it's a lot of the genre. Oh, no. Okay, well, uh, maybe uh, this next... Um, uh, Gene is also in a movie called Shoot First, Die Later. <laughs> that, that, that does sound like a movie I'd want to watch. Oh, how about this? Would you watch a movie called The Heroin Busters? I don't know, maybe. Well, he how, was in that movie too. How how much of it reads like uh, it was written by the people who used to write for Dragnet? How <laughs> how how go would, ask Alice is it? That's what I want to know. 
I, I don't know. I, I read it, and I'm, I was kind of hoping it would be more like Smokey and the Bandit, except with heroin instead. <laughs> <laughs> why don't, but, uh, no, I, why, don't, why don't we make movies? We have great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've established already on Twitter, never send the fans in to write the scripts. That's a bad idea. <sighs> All right. So uh, let's see. Uh, we we're going to talk about uh, who else we're going to talk about. So. Uh, we got an alchemist character uh, and his son. Uh, the son is actually the one who really wants Milium at first, and he's just a spoiled little rich boy. Uh, his dad is kind of high on his chemicals. He's, uh, you know, he, he's, I'm not going to call him a junkie exactly, but he's definitely into the mixing up potions and just trying them on himself. Uh, that's the character of Slimon who is voiced by Mel Wells, supposedly. Now, Mel Wells, people do actually know. He's like, uh, we actually talked about him on the Panda and the Magic Serpent episode. He's uh, got a nice low registered voice. He's a really well-known narrator. And yeah, apparently he had a voice in this movie as well. Uh, and his Voicing son... Voicing the junkie police chief, as you do. <laughs> as one does. Yes, it does. And uh, his son, uh, his voice is... I'm sorry, his name is... Hasalakum, getting a little more complex than the names here, uh, is void, voiced by Ted Rusoff, uh, who I was not able to find very much on. But again, he's one of those 70s Italian actors who, you know, has just uh, has been around for quite a while. Um, let's see. And we're going to end this off with uh, two more characters we will talk about. But again, if we want to talk about any of the other many characters in this, because there's quite a few in here, we'll bring them up as they come along. Uh, we also have a caliph king um i'm sorry caliph does mean king caliph muhammad bin sabek the fourth who is the king of baghdad essentially who our main character kind of goes up against in a dick whacking contest near the end of the movie and he is also <laughs> voiced by gene luoto who i just mentioned all the credits for so that's that guy and finally we're going to talk about shalaman who is the guy who imprisons Aldine and Milium near the beginning of the movie for his own sexual gratification because Pornhead did not exist in this time <laughs> period yet. Thank God. Shalaman is voiced by Robert Spafford, who, again, is a guy who's been around for the Italian scene for a while. Would you guys like to hear a couple of the movies he's been in? Are they going to be entertaining as Last List? Oh, I think they will be. Okay. Hooray! So he was in Murder Rock Dancing Death. Amazing. <laughs> He was in a movie called The New York Ripper. Oh, I own that one too. Oh, God. See, thank is, you. Thank you. Thank you, Severin Films or Vinegar Syndrome. I forget which one of you put that one out. <laughs> See, I'm so glad you're here, Amon. You have a re frame of reference for this that I would never have. Well, the, the beauty of knowing me is I know a lot of old things. I also watch a lot of old trash none of the rest of the crew watch, so. <laughs> you get, you gotta get to the trash in order to find the good stuff. Pretty much. And uh, one more thing he's been in, which this is one that I actually have heard of. He was a character in Your Hunter from the Future. Yes! It's a great movie. It is actually legitimately great. Like, it's, yes! B, it's a B movie, but it's got a twist in it that you will never see coming. Who says also, Red Brown can act? Yes, it is Reb <laughs> Brown himself as the lead. It also has an amazing theme song that uh, sings out the uh, lead character's name. Well, I don't remember that part, but I believe that. What, you don't remember? Yours world, he's the man. I think I missed that beginning part of it. Now oh. I want to watch that again, too. Oh, God. you must. That's an amazing movie. 
Ah, we're coming up on so many great things here. I, I and now to throw. I'm sorry. I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I looked up. No. I looked up. I looked up. Murder Rock Dancing Death on IMDb. Oh no. The the one one sentence summary: The owner of a prestigious New York ballet school teams up with a male model to solve a series of bizarre murders of a few of the students. This this sounds awful, and I need to find a copy immediately. Yes, <laughs> that that is a that is an elevator pitch if I've ever heard one. Now I have to go back to make one small correction here. Uh, Madia does have a credited actress, at least according to research we did, and that was Susan Spayford. Um. And again, I was not able to confirm whether Susan and Robert are um, uh, related to each other. Um, I'm assuming that they are, but I don't know if they're husband and wife, sister, brother, father, son, daughter, son. I'm not quite sure about that. But what are things that she's been in before? I, I actually l- glad I saved Susan for last because her titles for what she's been in are some of my favorite. Oh, so, boy. Now, she has been in some things that you may have heard of before. If you've ever seen that horribly... Uh, animated titanic movie that was made in italy no, she's, a small no. Role in that. no. she's the nanny in that oh, yes yeah it, oh it was God. great it was the best it was the best titanic adaptation ever i can't think of one that was better than that one none at all but uh for things that you've never heard of before she's also done uh dubbing italian movies into english including women's prison massacre <laughs> zombie holocaust oh and my personal favorite don't torture a duckling oh i i I, actually i don't own that one but i've been thinking of buying that one thank you arrow (laughs) this is just a a long extended commercial for foreign movie distributors isn't it yeah this is this is where this is where i'm gonna go to a five minute monologue at the end where i just rhapsodize about all the like distributors of like weird old sleaze i enjoy watching it's gonna be bad well, it's, ki- it's kind of fitting. The whole reason the anime Rama series was made in the first place is that a film distribution company commissioned it, Nippon Herald specifically, for their 10th anniversary. <sighs> and they were the ones who basically helped put together this dub because their job was distributing Japanese films outside of the country and bringing in foreign films to Japan. So they had those oh. European connections. Mm. Okay. So that would, okay, that would explain not only how it got an English dub, but also where it got the English dub. Yeah, let me, that, that would make sense to me because... Um... So my understanding, if you watch like an Italian-made movie from around this time, uh, most of them were usually shot without sound and then dubbed into whatever language they're going to be like distributed in afterwards. Okay. Um, which I, I'm assuming, which is part of the reason why like these actors are here. Basically, it's because like you know they, they'd shoot you know, uh, I don't. You watch like Suspiria or something, and it's like, all right, uh, we'll get an Italian cast together and they'll dub over everybody, and we'll get an English cast together and they'll dub over everybody, and then they'll just get sent to whatever country it's going to get filmed in. Which makes sense that like a uh, a distribution company, uh, you know, as Megan said, like, well, obviously they already knew they had access to all this stuff in the first place, so why not make it? It's like right. we don't need to, go and... to we don't need to go to America. We know an Italian studio to do it on the cheap. I don't even know if they could get someone in America to do it in in this time period. Like what what voiceover studio that's doing like radio work and uh uh children saturday morning cartoons at the time is gonna look at this and say like yeah yeah we'll, we'll go ahead and dub this for you really really low rent ones that's that's what i'm afraid of that's yeah, exactly. all i can think of it, it's gonna be that it, it's the closest thing i can think of is like you're gonna get a lot of like um uh hipstery beatnik theater people who are just available to do acting for not very much money 
that that would have been a much worse dub, but also kind of better in a really terrible way. <laughs> like this, this. Well, I. It's. I mean, okay. So let's talk about what this uh, the dub for this actually is. If anyone's interested, like, should you watch it in dub or should you just stick to the Japanese? Oh, the Japanese is more archetypal. It's what you'd expect for uh, a monolingual person. Like, if you're monolingual, like the rest of us are, then you could probably watch the Japanese just fine. Now, the dub itself. Now, I want your guys' opinion on this, is that mm -hmm. I thought it was okay. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot better than I expected for a dub of this era. Pretty much. Really? I thought it was exactly what I expected from a, a voiceover production of this era. Maybe not a, not a Japanese dub, but uh, for uh, a radio production or anything that gets like real actors in it, it's kind of what I expected for this. I was comparing it more to other dubbed anime films of the time, which largely were those Toei animated films, like the one you mm. talked about, Panda and Magic Serpent, which, yep. you know, you're dealing with films that were kind of being dubbed, dumbed down for children. So, and the performances kind of reflect that, even if the people involved are a little more well-known, a little more professional. Now, I can't imagine this film itself being dumbed down for children. Oh, no. <laughs> Ah, Although, yes, the, ah, yes, the 30-minute cut. Wonderful. <laughs> Although it should be noted, cut. there are differences between the original Japanese and the English version. They mm -hmm. cut out yes. 17 minutes of footage from yes. the dubbed version. And honestly, save for, like, maybe two or three moments in the film, the, the cuts are pretty smooth. They're yeah. not easily noticed if you're not looking for them. They are. You're right. I watched the English version, and then I watched the commentary, which uh, you, is over the Japanese version, so you can compare them. And it's like, they don't cut out major scenes, or like action scenes. It feels like they cut out mostly dialogue scenes, bits where Aldini is talking to, like, guard characters or incidental characters. And they definitely didn't cut out anything with tits in it. There, there is absolutely oh, no. no cut footage of that. Well, again, if you did that, you'd only have 30 minutes, because there's a lot of boobies in this film. <laughs> oh, there are so many boobies. Be, be that a warning. In case you were wondering about that x well, I'm not X-rating, but supposed X-rating, it's not for language. It is entirely for graphic, full frontal female presenting nipples. And butts. Yeah. There are a lot. And, I, sometimes, and highly abstracted sex scenes. Oh, yes. God. That, oh, that is, oh God! Yes, that... there are, there are scenes that literally Tezuka insisted on doing the key animation himself that I can only literally oh. describe <laughs> as horny furry nonsense. That so, was so, the part. So, so he so he he personally did that scene. Is that what you're telling he... me? Yes, the the scene with the the pink, the pink lioness, lioness trying to seduce the other lions. That's him. I was the extended transformation of a woman into a snake. That's him. The you pink genie lady turning into a horse. That's him. And, uh, I'm not saying Tezuka's that... a furry. I'm just saying. I mean, at, so, at Look, some point, the evidence becomes difficult to deny. This isn't even the last film he would make with a pink cat girl. Fifteen years later, one of his TV movies, Boggy the Monster of Man, prominently features a pink cat girl. And let us not even talk about the uh, unearthed uh, mouse erotica oh, fan yeah. art. Oh, yeah. Fan art, oh, but just yeah. Art. I'm literally found, found in a drawer by one of his children. I'm, I'm, 
I'm gonna be honest. When the scene with the cat lady showed up, that was that was literally what came to mind. It was like I thought Tezuka wasn't that involved in this production. I guess I was wrong. Question no, his mark? publicist hid that very well. <laughs> it oh, was. Boy. I mean, yeah, that's the. You can tell that. Uh, I mean, those animation sequences, like you were saying, Megan, feel very Tezuka. The human animation does not. It does not feel like Princess Knight or uh, Ad or Astro Boy or anything like that. It feels exactly like Ichi Yamamoto's other works. Uh, most prominently being Belladonna of Sadness. Like it, the character designs and the animation on that looks incredibly like that movie and uh there's a lot of uh mushi productions best and brightest at the time is working on this uh takashi yanase did the character designs uh he would go on to direct films like ringing bell for sanrio uh he also created anpan man which is a big deal in japan oh the, mm. um that, and you have people... the reputation uh, anpan man has like the reputation of being like the longest running animated everything in japan right now doesn't it it's one of them uh, yeah. And you also had people like um, Asami Hara, who also did a lot of films for Sanrio, and uh, Asamu Dezaki, the famous anime director, and oh, yeah. Akino Sugino, his go-to character designer. They were all animators on this film. Dang. And to give uh, something to Amon to play with as well, uh, the music on this was done by uh, Isao oh, Tumeta, who oh, oh. did some... Uh, uh, you want to talk about that? Oh, that's, that, that, my dusty old song for the evening is going to be related to him, so... Yeah, that uh, to put, what, to add to what Megan was saying, best and brightest really because oh, yeah. I, I really like his music on this. I like, I mean, um, it feels period appropriate with the jazzy, uh, not quite Beatles inspired, but like uh, just like that swing rock sound to it. It's and also the the orchestral pieces parts that he did as well. Yeah, the the music is one of the ways where like uh, the just. It, it was interesting watching this because I'm I'm used to you know when I see a lot of anime like it, it often feels very period appropriate but kind of what do I think of like oh this is what Japanese culture of the period feels like this is weird because it's like I feel like I've heard this music in like the trip or some other like Roger Corman movie from around this period of time like that's very much mm -hmm. what this sounds like it's 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 like I. yeah it's it's very much it's like yeah this this so apparently whatever was in the air and like kind of the more like exploitation indie side of like the American film industry at the time was clearly also kicking around Japan at like basically the same period. It's 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 interesting. Yeah, um I was gonna say Tamita was Mushi's like in house composer for a long time and of course later on he become famous as like this great electronica pioneer. Mm-hmm. And I, I forgot one more uh, notable animator on this, uh, future director Gisaburo Sugi. Uh, he was he actually oh, left yeah. Mushi by this point, but he he'd been brought back on because he was pals with the Aichi Yamamoto, and he handled a lot of the the sex scenes, like all the the really sexy abstract stuff in both this film and some of the later ones as well. Hmm. Is this the same one who would go on to be part of Group Tac? Yes, the same one who would direct Glass Mask, the 1984 version, Night on the Galactic Railroad. Galactic Railroad, yes. And of course, it's Magnum Opus, Street Fighter II, the animated movie. The, anim <laughs> <laughs> the best fighting anime ever made. And it's also got some gratuitous full frontal scenes in it. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's all good. We love you, Chun Li. Coming but uh, the, it does. Um, to uh, uh, talk about the dub for just on the, like, the actual quality of it here. Um, it doesn't sound goofy or out of place. It's like Megan was saying. It's much better than I would expect for a, a dub of a Japanese production that's being made in the time period that it comes out in. Like this is the kind of thing that I would expect 
like the quality I was expecting for more like an 80s dub where they're not quite up to the best level yet, but they are listenable. Like this is a very listenable and almost theatrical kind of dub to listen to. Uh, well, I was gonna say, like, I think, I think that, well, part, like, part of the reason I, this is better than I was expecting is because, like, you know, I have an idea of, like, you know, what animation in, like, the late 60s sound like, um, but, you know, a lot of that's also, like, you know, not necessarily Japanese stuff, it's, like, you know, Hanna-Barbera, whatever's, like, whatever old reruns I've seen, that kind of thing, um, but I think this is kind of a sign of, like, you know, oh, they're using people who, like, just dub movies regularly anyways, like, this sounds very much along the lines of, like, uh, well, you know, the Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood movies, which were all being made around the same time period. Like, it has that same, uh, like, not quite realism, but there is a sense of, like, oh, we're dubbing this like they're real people doing stuff, even though it's, like, this, you know, uh, you know, a- ancient world Fantasia setting. Like, there's a certain, you know, they, they, they don't, you know, they don't get too ridiculous unless, like, the character calls for it. Like, there's usually a, a, there's a, there's a groundedness to it that I wouldn't expect from this production, given what it is. Are you saying that the part where Aldi near the beginning of the movie is shouting out, Water! Yeah, get exactly. your fresh water! There, there they're like, there he's like, well, I can have it up here because he's doing a silly face. Yeah, that's about the only, like, it's it's that scenes and, uh, like, parts where he um, is, like, being a silver-tongued talker to some people where he gets sillier. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Fred gives him, like, a very suave speaking voice and like uh it makes them kind of feel more dignified than i think the animation does which is interesting yeah it's an interesting contrast to his japanese actor who has kind of a raspier more world-weary sort of voice but it Mm -hmm. does fit really well the character it's it it feels very sly but he also handles the dramatic material particularly in the second half pretty well Mm. And it, it also it fits with the dramatic parts where he's kind of becoming a, a power-hungry tyrant, too. And it, it kind of made me surprised that this is the same actor who, you know, just an hour earlier in the movie was, you know, getting into bed with all the snake women. This is the same guy who's saying, build me a tower to the sun. <laughs> Which, not, not for a bad reason, like, his entire scheme is, like, he, he had, like, he played the long call here. He was thinking, like, how can I destroy the city and get back at the people who wronged me? In the worst way possible. Yeah. It's not even so much that. It's basically he's trolling everyone. He's He wants to see how far he can take this whole kinghood thing. Like, how <laughs> far can my power go? That's true. It it, it reminds me a lot of... Um, uh, are you guys familiar with uh, Ub Iwerks, the guy who worked for Disney? A little bit. Yes. All right. Um, when he left Disney, he actually went to start his own uh, animation studio, or, um, his own series called the Comic Color Series, uh, which was uh, adaptations of fairy tales, kind of like this movie. Uh, it's also a fairy tale. One of them being uh, an adaptation of uh, uh, what's the guy with the head? Um, Humpty Dumpty. Except uh, he is telling them to make him a tower that can go up to the sun because he thinks there's gold inside of it. And, well, it ends just as badly as it does in this movie, too. So, I, I again, I'm wondering, what was the influence? Was there was that an influence on this? Because that was all the way back in the 30s. Or is the idea of making a giant tower that, spoiler, crumbles and destroys everything just ingrained in myths and fairy tales? Well, that's a Bible thing, isn't it? That's yeah, the tower, yeah, that's it's the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. I mean, God destroyed that one. This one was <laughs> ma- destroyed by uh, man's hubris. God, man's hubris, same thing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> be, they're, they're, be, they're being punished for being, for getting too big for their own britches. It's just uh, who's doing it. I do like what you're saying, Megan, about how uh, there's kind of a don't let people rule absolutely mentality. And I was wondering if that was actually like an intentional political message that was being put in this movie or if that was just like a means to end the movie. 
because I don't know I don't know that much about hmm. uh, Tezuka or um, uh, Yamamoto's like political bent or what their siding was at all. I don't know how politically influenced this was. I, I know the writing process for the film was a little bit tortured because initially Tesco was supposed to do the story and he did, took his first draft to the producers and they rejected it for being too boring. And Tesco got so mad that he nearly left the production. So <laughs> Yama, Yamamoto basically had to talk him down, but that also meant he kind of had to work on the story as well. So he brought in two other people uh, to do work on the screenplay. One was the director of an avant-garde theater troupe in Tokyo and the other was an experienced director from Toei. So they were the ones who contributed, kind of built upon the ideas that Tezuka originally had to build up the film. Really? So particularly when we look at this, that second um, screenwriter, the one who did the avant-garde theater, you know, maybe they could have been putting in some ideas like that. But yeah, I, I can't but, say with absolute certainty. Yeah, that's not, that sounds plausible, at least. That sounds... That's, that sounds avant-garde theater troupe later sounds like the kind of guy who has a bunch who would like sneak a bunch of leftist politics into something or just put him there because like <laughs> i find this interesting i mean it's it, it, that's interesting to hear because i'm watching it with only the understanding of like who the main people is working on this and it reads kind of like a manga adaptation in that the story isn't like a uh, like a third uh, three act definitive structure it feels like a serialized story where all right i get an idea for the st the beginning i get a new idea let's make that the story and i yep. get another idea and it's, it's a very serialized way to tell a movie which I, I think that would make it difficult for some people to get into this because some people don't like movies that feel like vignettes glue together yeah it, it is very reflective of the kind of the ways produced because not only did you have that the, the tortured screenwriting process but the animators kind of made additions themselves mostly just you know to show off their own skills extending sequences so like let's extend out the sequence on the island full of women <laughs> i really could have done like I, I, or, or the see, competition between uh alden and the king where they're showing off their wealth i don't i, I kind of like that part as, as just well, they, like I'm not saying they the have a car and a television they're showing off two things that should not exist in this time period. Oh yeah, yeah. there's some there's some great visual gags in that one, and I'm not saying all those additions are bad. It's just it, it, there's a little bit of a stone soup thing going on where everybody's throwing oh, in yeah. ideas. Yeah, this, wow, this... that's a... I haven't heard that story in a while. Yeah, no, there's a real stone there's a real soup. there's a real like overstuffed quality to this. Uh, there is during the second which... act. Yeah, which I, which I don't hate necessarily. I'm 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 often a fan of things that are kind of too messy for their own good. Uh, but it, it it's it it very much feels like part of that. Like everyone's having a good time, and no one's really worried about what the final product's going to look like. Cause we're having fun now. <laughs> dang it. Yeah, I can appreciate and, that. And that kind of bit the film in the butt because uh, six months out from its premiere, uh, Yamamoto discovered they'd only finished five minutes of animation. Woo. So what? they had to crunch the rest of the time. And keep in mind, this is a two-hour, ten-minute movie. This was the longest Japanese animated feature at that time. No kidding. Oof, and they don't, no kidding. A, that is some serious crunch. Yep. I mean, it's a minor miracle that it got finished, actually. Because yeah. I, I could easily have seen them, like, looking at that status of it and just being like, nope, we are not investing any more money into this. Just pull the plug on it. Yeah. I mean, everybody was having fun, but sometimes, yeah, fun gets away from you. It's true. That is true. <sighs> so, now the actual uh, acting on, um, I mean, let's just, I guess, uh, I was talking about the um, the competition scene near the end where uh, Aldine, uh, under the guise of Sinbad, which, you know, we got to throw in another 1001 reference night there, and the Caliph are, are 
they're doing their dick waggling contest and showing off who's got the bigger, better, more expensive, shinier things. Um, the actual performance by the actor there, uh, who we think was Gene Luoto, uh, is pretty good. It's uh, I, mean, I don't have any actors in this whole breakdown that I thought were be- uh, were miscast or poorly directed. Like everyone is like, okay, the goofy characters are as goofy as they need to be, fit the animation. The lip flaps are actually pretty spot on, and the characters who are like on the more serious side, like Gene here, who's like uh, kind of like insistent about that's my flying horse. You're not in league with the bad guys, are you, Aldine? Is very dignified and fitting for the kind of character that he's supposed to be. I don't know. I th- they definitely go goofy on some of the more minor characters. Uh, the Caliph is, is an example of that. Most of what I remember taking away from his forms were his big bulbous bees. Um, <laughs> and, and definitely like G- Jin and Genie, like they have these very goofy, nebbishy, like sitcom uh, husband and wife style voices. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Uh, I will also argue that Madia's I, I hate to say it before or Susan Stafford. She, the character Madia is a good character. Susan Stafford's performance is not that great. She, she she's kind of stiff. Uh, she feels like she doesn't quite get the character. Yeah, I th- I agree that it's it's not that her performance isn't good. I think it's just not as good as the character deserves. Mm. Yeah. And it's problems like a lot of the best performances are people we don't know who they are. Like, yeah. I, I really like Jalice's performance, and I'm really curious if we'll ever find out if she's double cast with Milliam. It's hard to tell because Milliam has very little dialogue. Mm. The most she ever yeah. says is when she dies. When she's dying. <laughs> Let these final words be I know you're gonna grow up to be. But, and then she's gone. But, but Jalice has, like, kind of a, a sprightliness. She, she's a, almost a little bratty. A little trick, a, a little bit of a trickster like her dad. Like you can tell that actress is having some fun with it, and badly. Oh man, he was the best performance in the dub. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. So we don't know who badly was, but because he's the character who is supposed to be, he's playing everyone basically. He never tells anyone what to do. He leads them on to believe that they're in charge, and as a result, he works himself up in the whole scheme of things. Uh, his actual actor is really good because you would think that an actor like that would have like a <laughs> kind of evil voice to him, but he doesn't. He has a very stately, uh, put together composure, a uh, bit of a lower voice without much of a rumble to it, and it's just it's very conniving in the best way possible. It's like you don't dislike badly. Um, okay, I take that back. <laughs> I dislike badly when we first get introduced to him when you know he has his encounter with uh, Madia which, you know, uh, trigger warning, uh, is non-consensual. But after that, all his interactions are very uh, calculated and conniving, and it's like, I kind of like this guy around. He's very, he's very crafty. He feels very... He feels a lot like Iago, Iago from Othello, not Iago from the other movie set in Baghdad that's animated. <laughs> um, yeah, no, like, one of the things I do like about this dub is... Um, when I think of older dubs, and when I'm saying older here, I mostly mean kind of like, you know, 80s and 90s stuff when, like, anime on home video first started being a thing. Um, when you get mm-hmm. bad dubs in there, there's often a feeling of, like, no one no one doing the dub was really taking it that seriously. Like, the direction's not great, all the performances feel, like, kind of rushed or half-assed or poorly directed. 
Um, and that's often mm-hmm. why they're they're not very good. Something I appreciate here is you do feel like that, at the very least, like, they were taking this as seriously as they would any other, like, film that would be put in front of them to dub. And the fact that it was, like, you know, this mm-hmm. foreign anime movie, like, didn't really matter. It was like, no, we get paid to do good work. Like, if we do half-assed work, that looks bad on us. So we're going to give this as much care and attention as we would any other movie that we get hired to work on. No, I, I think, like, in performances like Badly, you can really see that. Like, they could have made him a lot more, like... It was like Skeletor voice, you know, like, you know, a lot more kind of like goofy conniving. And I feel like the fact that it's like, no, he's he he is like a serious villain for a lot of the story. And we should like give him that kind of performance is indicative of that. Yeah. And it helps that this the setting for this is not like a uh, grounded in reality, realistic modern day setting. It's supposed to be set in a mythological past time period that's uh, is the basis for a lot of like children's fairy tales. Mm-hmm. So it allows their it allows their slightly uh, more over the top voices to really match with the especially with the animation because with the color palette and the exaggerated uh, facial expressions, it really fits with the way that they're working to direct it. I don't think that was like. Uh, the Japanese producers weren't like, oh, these Italian actors have exactly the kind of over-the-topness that will match our exquisite Mushi Pro animation. This is better than that American Hanna-Barbera studio. No, no, that wasn't the thought process, but it does work for what we got. Mm. I have nothing against the fine folks at Hanna-Barbera, obviously. It's just, I would have... Although I, I would kill to see, like, an adaptation of this movie directed, uh, voiced by, like, you know, Mel Blanc and uh, the other actors whose names I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Oh, my God. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a dove like this that features, like, a bunch of Looney Tunes people. And oh, my God. Oh, boy. I, I mean, it's it, that'd be, like, more good for, uh, I don't know, like, an alternative audio track. I'm a man. You've, I mean, you've, you've seen those clips where, like, the cast of SpongeBob dubs, like, an old classic movie. I'm imagining, like, that, but with, like, Looney Tunes voices, and it's it's killing yeah, me right they, now. Yeah, get, get Dawes Butler and um, June, uh, Foray. June Foray. And all, yeah, I get that. Oh, oh God. The, oh, what could have been? But it, they didn't have the time for that. They were too busy making that um, Huckleberry Hound money. <laughs> They were generally making good money at that time period. Like, there was money to be had in television animation, especially when you don't spend a lot of money on the actual animation. Whoops. Merchandising. <laughs> Speaking of money, um, talking about some of the goofier characters, um, the uh, Has- Hasalakum, the the spoiled rich kid at the beginning of the movie who tries mm-hmm. to buy Melium, mm-hmm. uh, he gets uh he gets some fun bits when he's uh he's on his um his drugs <laughs> near the yeah. right before he dies. Yeah, Tesla got... sounds like he's having fun. Oh, absolutely. He's got this, you know, over top weenie voice. The, the main difference between him and the Japanese actor is uh Ted Rusoff adds gives him a lisp. But that just really just adds uh, to the weeniness. It does. It's it's very intentionally matching with the the, not just the animation, but also the character is not supposed to be an intimidation. He's only in this movie because his parents got money yeah. and that's just pathetic yeah he's literally a spoiled mama's boy pretty much it's um it, it, it's, inter- it's interesting to learn that um like this is like as as um you mentioned like this is done like disney style and like each character would have their own animator because i, I remember looking a lot of that character's animation and think whoever did this had a lot of fun oh uh, yeah absolutely did. actually actually the first the first <laughs> This is really dorky. The first thing that sprung to mind is you, Megan. You're you're at least familiar with them um, from Eroica with Love. Oh yes. Yeah, watching this, Eroica has his little lackey James, 
how can, yes. how uh, Hasekalama moves like if we got an heroic anime <laughs> in the seventies, this is how he would have been oh my animated. God. Yes, <laughs> just yes, this, absolutely. This dippy short little weirdo who's not as not very good at anything. <laughs> oh, that will only make sense to like twenty five people who actually bought that manga. But yes. <laughs> I wonder if there's more than 25 people who have actually gotten to see this movie yet. <laughs> I hope there are. Yeah, I, mean, I, I really do hope this release has gotten more people's eyes on it. I mean, it's available, which certainly helps. Like, I know certainly part of the reason I've not seen it for a long time is that, I like, apart from, like, piracy options, I don't recall it being very easy to get your hands on. I'm not sure this even released on DVD in this country prior to, like, this release. No. Just, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, um, it wasn't like um, uh, like uh, Night on the Galactic Railroad that got re-released by Discotech, where there was a prior release by Central Park Media. This was just something that no one had the rights to for the longest time. Yeah, these films got pretty steady home video releases in Japan, but it's only mm-hmm. within the DVD era to, they started to come out in Europe, and it really took off once Blu-ray took hold, because then they started getting uh, releases in like France and Germany and the UK, and that was basically the release that Discotech... Uh, used for their own. Mm. I'm, I'm glad they do too. Mm. I was glad, yeah. I was I was like, where are they going to get the prints for this? And I'm glad that they they usually outsource it from the cleanest version they can get, which isn't always the Japanese master. Sometimes it's from like a better quality version from a foreign distributor. Ah, film preservation. So the it, it's so sad. It really is that like I'm not for pro piracy either, but. If in the case of stuff that is not like readily available anywhere or could easily fall into like actual lost media, absolutely hold on to it in some capacity. This is why the Internet Archive is so important to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's see. Um, so uh, what do I want to talk about here? Um, so we talked about the main character Aldine. We talked about uh, a couple of the main women. Um, should we talk about the Snake Woman a little bit? Yes, yes, I want to talk about her. Okay, let's talk about Queen Lamia, um, which, I mean, it might be a spoiler if you haven't seen the movie yet and you just look at that character design like, what do you mean Snake Woman? Oh, you mean like she's, you know, vicious and evil and stuff like that? No, no, no we're being very literal. She is a literal Snake Woman. Yeah, she, naming her Lamia style. is a big hint. <laughs> that, I mean, if that wasn't subtle enough, but not everybody knows their mythology references. Uh, but the actual actress, um, who I believe, uh, who do we have listed? Um, Carolyn De Fonseca. Mm-hmm. I don't speak Italian. Uh, is nice in that she's supposed to be like the sensual uh, seducer kind of voice. Like she tells Aldine, um, take a rest and then we'll lie together again in a couple of hours. Yeah, she has this it- very deep, sensual, femme fatale sort of voice. Mm. Which um, it, it fits very well with the character who's supposed to be that alluring type. Honestly, the entire section with the snake women, uh, it reminds me of the Odyssey. It reminds me of the Lotus Eaters chapter. One, because it's also uh, you know, a lush paradise that you're tempted to stay at and never leave. And two, it's a part that is usually cut from most adaptations. And I feel like the snake woman island thing is the part that narratively you could have cut from the movie and not really lost anything. Except a whole lot of tits. Yeah. Which are very important, but seriously, you, we could bring the movie down just a little bit. And that valuable furry content. <laughs> Gotta have that furry transformation art. Tezuka look, needs the, it. The, look, we, we have a quota to stand here. There's a, there's a marketable demographic out there. They've got to be catered to, okay? You, I mean, if Odd Taxi and Beastars and Kipo and everything else that came out this year wasn't a hint, there are a lot of 
furry people buying stuff out there these days. See, there you go. Tezuka was ahead of his time. <laughs> Pioneer in ways he didn't even it. know. <laughs> I, I don't know if like any of the Disney animators were furries exactly, because they also animated a lot of you know furry talking animals, but I bet there were a couple in there. I bet Freddie Moore was a furry. Freddie Moore was like the guy, the go-to guy for drawing like really uh, pretty looking girls. Like he designed the the centaurs in uh, Fantasia. He was the main character designer on um, one of the mini segments. Um, I think it's called uh, All the Cats Dance. The guy was a little bit of a pervert. That's just what I'm saying. Did he work on Robin Hood? Because that'll be the tell. <laughs> he unfortunately did not. He uh, he died of a car crash. Uh, before uh, Walt Disney's death, I think it was actually Ooh. in the 50s when he passed away. Oh, so he did not get a chance. He did not get a chance to design Maid Marian, unfortunately. <laughs> Wait, Wooly Reitherman did but, good work. I'm not going to shame him for anything. But yes, I, I I realized when I was looking through the credits and I looked at her name that I'd heard her. Be- I'd heard Carolyn De Fonseca before. Uh-huh. Really? Now, do either of you watch Mystery Science Theater 3000? Oh yeah. Oh yes. Do you recall the episode Hercules Against the Moon Men? I believe so. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the evil queen in that movie? Partially? Does she play the evil queen? Yes, she dubs the evil queen, the the villain lady with all the makeup and the tight corsets. Beautiful. (laughs) When I realized that, it was just like galaxy brain. (laughs) this makes sense because on um, on the on the behind the voice actors thread that uh, millicent put together he would he would periodically um post stuff from a magazine called video watchdog which it's like a long-running magazine does like home video releases and also has like interviews with actors and they had a bit in there where they're kind of talking about like yeah this scene at the time a lot of times you know if you found like a certain if there's a certain archetype a character was like you knew immediately who to cast for that and i have a vague recollection of carolyn being it's mm. like yeah did you is there is there a sexy lady you get carolyn to voice her because she's good at that she what, is was she was she like a temptress sexy person in that movie i don't remember yes, yes she okay. was okay right, so yeah, you're right so she had that archetype that perfectly fit and it's a good idea they ca- to cast her in this role too because oh god does queen lamia love to seduce people and he <laughs> <laughs> that poor goat <sighs> so that kind of covers uh do you guys have any um other like side characters or anyone else in the cast that we didn't cover yet that you'd like to talk about hmm. okay so <laughs> There's, um, there's, there's, I guess there's a lot uh, of good like is there a lot of good like tertiary roles of people who just kind of pop up for like a few lines and like you're nice. That's that's how that I like the, I like that gatekeeper for some reason that um Aladdin runs into her. He's like, what happened to my girlfriend? And he's like, all right, fine, I'll go check it out. I think mostly just because he has a nice sounding voice. It's just like, oh, you sound nice. It's a shame you're not in more of the movie. Yeah. That's another point is that um, uh, sometimes in uh, movies, dubs, there's usually, like, background characters that are very clearly, like, the C-tier actors who aren't as up to par as the other ones. There's not, there wasn't really, like, a standout part that I could think of in this dub where anyone sounded, like, miscast or out of place, even for the background characters. Mm. Uh, Megan, did you have any other characters we didn't talk about that uh, you're jonesing to talk about? Uh, not, well, maybe one, but apart, unfortunately, it's another one where we don't know the actor. It's the voice of the magic ship who has this big bombastic voice. (laughs) That's right. That's another, that's a weird one in that they they chose not to have a character design for that. It's just the voice of the ship. 
yes, because one point Alden finds himself on a magic ship that's like wrecked at this island, and he's like, I was created by Satan, but then Satan used me and left me behind, and now I shall be your slave, and you can take me around wherever you want, and I will grant every wish you want. But yeah, he has this big, booming, like, radio announcer voice, and it's great. Yeah. It is. And it's a shame that we don't get more of that. Like, I was kind of sad that uh, if I were to, like, change the structure of anything, we see that uh, he goes off on the adventures with the ship, and he, you know, vows to double his fortune and, like, have a girl in every port. And I'm like, I kind of like to see some of those adventures, but we don't get that. We have to do the time skip 15 years in the future. We get the great kazoo and his girlfriend, and we get the what's going on with Jollis and her boyfriend. We don't really get to see those adventures. Like, I feel like that that, that could have been a little bit more of the movie. Mm. Yeah, but it was long enough as is, and it, let's be real, it, it just would have been an excuse for more tits. Oh, I would have just, like, cut out the other parts that had unnecessary tits. Like, some of the sex scenes, like, you could trim those down a little bit. We could get more adventures of Aldine and his boat going on. Like, where did he get the car? I, wa- I just want to know where he got the car, <laughs> because they're in the past time period where machinery doesn't exist yet. Where did he get a car? Or the record player. <laughs> Where did he get... That, with the elephant, that's the record player that's going at... Was it 16 revolutions no, it's per minute? No, 33 and a third. Yeah. Where did he get it? Uh, the 50s, when those existed. He's <laughs> <laughs> a time traveler. So, let's take this time here, then, I guess, to um, go into final thoughts. I'm going to give each one of you your own uh, free moment to talk here. Aman, tell us what you thought of the overall dub for A Thousand and One Nights. This is pretty good. Like, this is a really solidly put together dub. Like, uh, like if if you out there have any experience watching kind of like like foreign made, but then like in English movies from this kind of like you know the sixties or the seventies made like you know, Italy or France or anything, like you would probably enjoy this. Uh, it is it is very late sixties. Which, you know, for, oh, for yes. me, that's a bonus. I actually, watching this gave me very fond memories of, uh, when I was in college, I wrote my thesis on, like, depictions of the counterculture in American cinema. And I so I had to, like, watch a bunch of kind of, like, hippie exploitation kind of things. Uh, this gave me very hippie exploitation, <laughs> basically. <laughs> all right. Is, only, only one of them wow. was actually an exploitation movie. The other two weren't quite that. But it was that same kind of, like, only one of them's really an exploitation movie, but is that kind of like, hey, let's 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 put the counterculture in our movie to various forms of authenticity and believability. I mean, would, would hair count as a as a hippie exploitation movie? I wouldn't quite. I don't know if I count as exploitation just because I feel like uh, hair, at least in the musical form, in in the, the original musical, is clearly written by actual hippies. Uh, yeah. And from what my knowledge of the movie is, that at least like it it maintains that at least. Uh, okay. you know, the, I don't, you know, the one, like, the one I'm thinking of is, like, there's, there's a one called Cactus Flower, which is about Walter Matthau having an affair with Goldie Hawn, uh, which oh, is actually, oh. it's a pretty good movie, but, like, it's, it's like, yeah, this was made by, this was made by MGM, oh boy. <laughs> they did not, they <laughs> did not have their thumb on the pulse of America, America's youth at the time, <laughs> no, no. No, no, that, that is, uh, uh. Is the, uh, what is it called? That is a, uh, how do you do fellow kids of the time? Oh, very much so. Um, but, uh, th- like, this 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 has a lot of that, uh, not quite that feeling. This feels a little more, uh, less hokey, I guess, as I would put it. But it is very much like, oh, yes, this is very much like 1969 with, like, the kind of, like, the more, like, surreal moments and the score. Uh, and the weird little, like, model interludes, which I was always, I was very intrigued by, because I was like, how long did it take them to put this together? Was this really cheaper than animating this? 
Well, sometimes. It's, sometimes it's not even that it's cheaper. Sometimes it's just uh, it's more fitting for the tone that they're going hmm. for. Um, and, and also in the knowledge, uh, like Megan was saying, that they were behind schedule. <laughs> like, maybe it was just quicker to take the camera, shake it in front of this model that they put together, and it's like, there's our footage. That That's 30 seconds right there. Yeah, good point. Uh, although my favorite is probably when it's like uh, Alden's going to fall into a body of water, and it's like... <laughs> It's just and go to the, the coastline of the camera. Yes. <laughs> Look, animating water is hard. It That's has true. always been hard. Actually, no. My favorite part is like after he falls in, where they've like animated him like swimming away on the waves. Yeah, it's just the cell superimposed on the waves. It's just—it's very like this is this is very creative. I'll give you a lot of credit for that. This is this is fun to watch. Um, there are there are there are cheaper ways to get around animating. <laughs> Um, it's like, yeah, like, this, this is, this is kind of like, it, it, this is like kind of dated in the way you'd expect it to be, but I find, like, I think that was a lot of fun to watch. Like, uh, this is like pretty well put together. Like, uh, you know, if you watch this instead of the Japanese version, uh, like some stuff has been removed, but not that much really. Like it's, it's more or less the same movie. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, Two hours is already kind of long. Yeah. So maybe that's actually better. I, I also, I was, I was very amused when I was listening to the uh, Helen McCarthy's uh, commentary where she points out this is the falls into the longer than I expected list of animes whose main characters are like directly based on Jean-Paul Belmondo yes, yes. Oh, I almost forgot I'm that so story I'm glad you brought that up because yeah um, Yamamoto recounts at one point that he and the writers didn't really have an idea of what kind of character Alden should be until they started talking with Yanase to do the character designs he's like well what should he look like and they're like uh it looks and like this French guy yeah, but there is Yamamoto who said, uh, we'll just make him look like Jean-Paul Belmondo and Breathless. Everybody fucking loves Breathless. It's amazing. <laughs> and not at, like, modern audiences don't quite remember the 60s new wave French film cinema, so it yeah, it's, gets it's away. Yeah, it's more of a like, film nerd thing, uh, but, yeah. I mean, if you look yeah. at pictures of Belmondo from the time, it's it's a pretty good likeness. I'm, look, I'm, looking, I'm looking at, like, his picture on Wikipedia, which is, like, a, a photo of him from 2013, and he still looks like Alden. It's like, that, that, that nose <laughs> is very strong. Uh, yes. So, Megan, what did you think of the overall dub and, you know, just the film in general for this uh, cinematic masterpiece? I probably watched this film like five times in total, both the Japanese and the dub version, and I've, I've really come around on it. I enjoy it. It's not the best anime rama film because are you kidding? Have you seen Belladonna of Sadness? It's amazing. Yeah, that is but, a more coherent, less flawed film for sure. Yes, but and it's definitely not as flawed as Cleopatra, which is why precisely why you shouldn't give Tessica full creative control of a project. Yeah, but I haven't watched that one specifically it, for its reputation. It's interesting. It's worth at least a watch. But I, I don't know. I really enjoy A Thousand and One Nights because it has that spirit of creativity and fun and looseness and let's throw this idea at the wall and see what sticks. And it really shines through in every aspect of the film. And I do enjoy the job, the dub. Like it, it, it's better than I expected. It's a, a little more accurately translated than I expected for the time. It's maybe a little cheesy, maybe a little stilted, but not in an unpleasant way. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, is that it's, none of it really feels unpleasant. It doesn't feel like a, uh, it's the kind of thing where you would want to flip over to the Japanese partway through it. Like, it's perfectly competent from beginning to end. Absolutely. Mm. Excellent. So, uh, I have to agree with these guys in that um, I've also kind of come around on it. 
uh, as a film that I saw years ago. Um, I originally, like I said, I came across this because I was curious about the film that uh, is tied to Fritz the Cat in American animation mentality. It didn't actually have an X-rated rating, but it still has that reputation for being late 60s, early 70s animation that was trying to break from the mold of what anim- of mainstream animation was known for at the time. And hearing that they had a really talented group that was allowed to do their own shtick in different teams really did help bring out what was strong about it. Is it something that you should watch? Um, I'd say it's best enjoyed with a group because in trying to watch this uh, just kind of by myself uh, for a rewatch for this podcast, I had to kind of watch it in bits and pieces. Um, It feels like in the middle section, it starts to lose the flow a little bit because you're obviously not following Mm -hmm. a main narrative. You know that when he like gets into the cave, like this is a, this is a side tangent. This isn't going to, you know, advance the plot exactly. And it doesn't, all it does is it gets him and uh, uh, Madia close together. But uh, aside from that, because I can excuse some movies that are kind of meandering as long as it's visually engaging and the dub is uh, perfectly competent, it is perfectly competent for the time period, better than I would expect it, and especially from a group that probably didn't think that uh, you know American podcasters would be talking about it 50 years into the future, they definitely gave it more credit and more effort than I think anyone else would have done. Again, compare this to our last retro episode, Panda and the Magic Serpent, which was a hodgepodge of good and not very good actors put into it. This, by contrast, is perfectly good 70s Japanese dubbed animation. And with that, um, I think we have fully covered every one of the 1001 Nights. We're up to 1002 now. So thank you guys very much. You're welcome. Indeed. So uh, if you've been watching, if you've listened to this podcast and you're like, I, I got to watch this thing that these guys are talking about. I got to see the tits. You can see it for yourself. <laughs> this movie is uh, readily available on home media from Discotech. Yes, our fine folks who are the saviors of all retro things that people have forgotten about have this movie available. It is up on all services where you can get home video releases, right stuff, Amazon, even eBay if you're feeling really saucy. So give it a listen. It's got the original Japanese audio, which is the full two-hour and ten-minute version. It's got the international English version, which is an hour and 53 minutes. It's got an interview with the director. It's got a feature-length commentary by Helen McCarthy and it is well worth the purchase. So that is where you can watch this movie if you're really feeling up to it. Now, if you want to follow us here on the Dub Talk Podcast, we are here on YouTube at Dub Talk Podcast. And we have a couple of different uh, audio-only feeds. We have Podbean. We have Apple Music. We have a couple other ones that I can't remember. But we they're linked down there below because you, you want to see where the links are. They're right there. But we could not do any of these podcasts if we did not have help from our wonderful patrons, yes, Dub Talk Podcast has a Patreon. And if you want to get the episodes early, you want to get sneak peeks, and you want to get extra little goodies that are only available to the patrons, you should donate using the link below. And we want to give a huge thank you to the fine folks who have donated to our Patreon. So we want to give a huge shout out to our $5 patrons. Huge thanks to Megan's mom and dad, Michelle Travis, Miraculous Corazon, Nico Robin, but with yaoi hands, Sue Tweet, and Victor Mayboroda. 
And we want to give an even bigger, huge, extra special thanks to our $10 patrons. These are the guys who donate a little bit extra, get the episodes early, and our eternal gratitude. And those fine folks are Carly Lestikow. Thank you, Crimson Echidna. Big thanks, Jacob Wilson. Huge thanks, Jared Hawkins. Biggest thanks, Julia W. Huge extra thanks to Marissa Lenti. And thank you so much, Otaku Anthony. Thank you guys so much for making what we do possible. Um, Aman, what do you do in the world when you're not talking about uh, retro hippie movies or music that no one has heard of before? Do I do anything else? I, that's like that. That I mean, and comic I, books are my hobbies, man. I'm sorry. Did I, did I cover your entire demographic in like a complete circle there? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Uh, it's all right. It's just, you know, it's one of, one of those moments where you kind of realize the scope of your own life and you feel weird about it. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at AmonDuelUS. Duel has two U's in it. I talk about a bunch of weird stuff and I retweet too many Steely Dan memes because I've turned into that guy. Um, but I also talk about weird, obscure music that uh, only other music nerds have ever heard of. Uh, music, the music in this movie is a lot of fun, uh, and as we uh, mentioned earlier, it is a uh, it was uh, composed by a guy named uh, Asayo Tomita. Uh, he's a fairly big deal in his own right. He was a very successful uh, composer. He did lots of anime and movies, uh, and he also had a um, pretty pretty successful second career as basically being pretty much what like the other big like synth pioneer who wasn't wendy carlos uh and uh his in point well <laughs> speaking of wendy carlos i found out that apparently his first his first actual uh solo album Demita, was a album released under the name electric samurai called switched on rock uh, which is basically <laughs> which is which samurai. Which made out what uh, Wendy Carlos first album was switched on Bach, a bunch of Bach cantatas played on synthesizer, uh, and uh, this is that except for like sort of contemporary pop rock songs, and it's it is like sitting on the line between like a a brilliant avant garde piece and just the worst awful cheese you have ever heard in your life. Uh, it's it, like how, what's a basic comparison when you say awful cheese. I, 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 found, like, I, I, found, I, I found an album that was one of these kind of, like, switched-on things that was, like, switched-on country, and it had, like, a cheesy synth version of Yakety Sax. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. All right. Uh, that, this, that doesn't sound like something that should exist. Uh, it, it does. Yeah, I can I can send you a link later. Um, it, it I, The weird point is someone... I, I found this on YouTube, because, like, I don't think this is actually streaming anywhere. Uh, but um, someone pointed out, it's like, all this weirdly sounds like Vocaloid music, except just with, like, fewer, like, vowels and consonants, because... You know, they didn't have a vocal synthesizer at the time. Um, mm -hmm. That's not the one I would recommend, because that one's a little too... <laughs> a little too a little too maybe bad. Uh, so instead, I'm going to recommend his second album, which is called Snowflakes Are Dancing, which, also in the style of uh, Wendy Carlos's synthesizer albums, is a synthesizer arrangement of uh, several Claude Debussy pieces. Uh, and the fun thing about this is, much like when Wendy Carlos was working on her albums, these were all made before they invented synthesizers that could play, like, two notes at the same time. So if you want to oh. do any of these compositions, you have to play out each individual note by itself and then mix everything together. Uh, right. Case in point, this, like, 40-minute album took about, like, a year to make. There's also something, inter something else interesting about that album. Uh -huh. Because one of those Debussy pieces... Was the theme song for Jack Horkheimer's Stargazer? It's true. 
mind if you were a dork then. who stayed up way too late watching PBS like I was, <laughs> we'll know what I'm talking about. I mean, that having having heard some of this album, it's like, yes, this is absolutely music that should be for stargazing. That is a correct decision. Uh, also, I, I don't know. I, I have to I have to forward you um, if I can find it. Um, the um, uh, the synth pop uh, remix of the soundtrack to uh, Adu Galaxy Express 3.9 is like this really cool synth trip remix of the orchestral pieces that is also like, it feels like it's perfect for stargazing because it's all twinkling electronic sounds set to like really nice orchestral pieces. Oh god, that's gotta be so Moog heavy. I know. It, it is, oh, the Moog is off the charts in that synthesizer. Um, uh, also, fun fun fact about Snowflakes Are Dancing that I was not expecting, it was actually nominate, nominated for, like, a small pile of Grammys, which is not something I associate with, like, Japanese composers from this era. Uh, so, good for him. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, it didn't win any, as far okay. as I can tell, but, like, it got, it got, like, nominated for a bunch of classical Grammys, so, like, alright. Back when uh, being nominated for a Grammy was actually worth something. Aww. I'm not sure there was ever a period where the Grammys had dignity. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I was giving you a bone there to be nice. Look, the, 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 this this came out in 1974. The Grammys already showed how old and stodgy they are by it being 1967 and having a Frank Sinatra album win Best Album. And like okay, nothing yeah, against, and pretty, like nothing. That's pretty Nothing dated. against Frank. He's very <laughs> talented, but he was not the hip, right, right. cutting edge of music in 1967. In 1960s, yes. <laughs> Let, let's move on to the, the actual pioneers. Let's give Yes a Grammy, for God's sakes. Oh, Yes yes, are way too dorky to get a Grammy. <laughs> That's my point. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Anyways. <laughs> Megan, Megan, introduce yourself to the world now that they've listened to you for a good hour. Well, yes. Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, I am at Brainchild129. Uh, if you want to read my manga reviews, they are at mangatestdrive.blogspot.com. If you want to read my story of anime Rama series and other uh, longer form reviews and essays, including a number on bad anime, uh, you can do so at Renaissance Jose, which is renaissancejose.blogspot.com. Uh, I'm an occasional contributor to Anime Feminist. I've done some articles and podcast appearances there. And uh, at least as of this recording, I just finished up doing a panel for Anime Lockdown, and I will soon be appearing as a panelist at Otakon 2021. Yay! Yeah. Now, are those um, uh, the Anime Lockdown panels uh, visible anywhere? Uh, they probably will be by the time this episode goes up. So probably up on, they have a YouTube channel, right? Yes. All right. Okay. Yeah. So we'll have to we'll have to put a link to that down in the description because I mean, if you people haven't seen her panels yet, you absolutely need to check them out because it, I mean, there's a certain subtext of like nerdy historical based anime people that I love to be associated with. And I think Amon does too. Mm -hmm. And Megan is like dead in the center of that circle. Absolutely. And if I ever meet with you two at a convention again, you know, maybe at Anime Boston next year, we'll see. You know, maybe I'll, I'll bring my copies of A Thousand One Nights, or even better still, maybe I'll make you watch Cleopatra, because that's an interesting time. I love, okay, I love interesting, interesting times. <laughs> I mean, I do too. It's just, I prefer it to be with something that, like, could it be good stuff instead? But, I mean... <laughs> It's got a historical basis to it, so I guess we can let that one go. Sometimes it is extremely enlightening to watch very talented people faceplant really, really hard. That's true. And you know what? I probably wouldn't be inclined to watch Cleopatra any other time except with a fine group of folks. So you know what? Bring your copy with you. We, we're doing it. I'm putting that yeah! pack in blood right here. Yeah. Hell yeah. 
Oh god, what have I done? <laughs> and now, uh, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at NoahClue. Uh, I uh, like to have long discussions about the international world of animation, be it Russian, Italian, now Italian, Irish. I've been actually reading about some South African animation recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, also post pictures of my kids and my puppy because we just got a new puppy. Her name is Lily. She's adorable. Oh, Love the puppy so much. Oh. I, have entered, I have entered into the realm of puppy dadhood. Puppy. <laughs> uh, no regrets. So um, I, I think we're good. I think uh, right, everyone say your final farewells. And thank you, everyone, for listening to us talk about a 50-year-old movie with lots and lots of fan service in oh, it. Yeah. Okay, I'll go let Megan out from the closet now. <laughs> okay. She knows what she did. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Megan. And Love thank you. you so much, Megan, this Megan, for uh, joining us for this episode. Indeed. You're welcome. All right, so aloha and otaku on, my friends. Aloha. Rock on Boston, rock over Chicago. Aloha.